So our text will come from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. This is the word of the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Now let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful that we can be gathered here together this morning, that we can share in the worship of these songs together, praising and honoring you, declaring true things about the gospel. Oh Lord, I pray for everyone here that we would all be able to faithfully and honestly confess that Christ is all. He is our all. Now, Lord, help us as we meditate on these words. Lord, we want to be in a right relationship with you. Help us, Father, as we think about this together. Send your spirit. Give us discernment, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you pay attention to almost any type of Christian media in the past few years, probably in the past 20 years almost, uh, be it uh, on Christian radio or Christian television or if you've been to any Christian concerts and heard what they say from the stage, you've probably heard some form of this evangelical catchphrase. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. Or It's not about keeping rules, it's about having a relationship with God. And these statements are true for what what they're worth, but when we are talking about having a relationship with God, what do we mean? What kind of a relationship are we talking about? Obviously having a relationship with God is, is much, much different than any other relationship we can have, although it is you know, like a, like a marriage relationship, Bible uh, tells us that, you still cannot physically see or get a hug from God like you can from your spouse. And although it is like a friendship, again, Bible refers to it as a friendship, it, it's not like you can, you know, meet up with God to just hang out or, or play a game together. You know, you can't just go bowling with God like you can with your friends. And although there are are many similarities to the relationship you have with your father, talking with God and wanting his advice for your specific situation is not quite the same as calling up your dad and listening to the advice that he would give you. So what does it mean to be in a relationship with God? And how do you go about it? What kind of a relationship is it? How do we relate with God? Well, that's actually what the Bible is all about. God has given us the Bible in order to help us to know how we are to live in relationship with him. Our problem is that we simply just don't pay all that much attention to the Bible. Nor do we take it all that seriously. 
And that's why we struggle to understand what it really means to be in a relationship with God. Now, I could have gone almost anywhere in the scriptures and found a passage that would help us grow in our understanding of what it means to be in a right relationship with God, but I thought I'd choose one of my favorite passages and probably the most famous passage in all of the book of Proverbs here, Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 8. It may be a passage that you have memorized or you have, uh, have uh, imprinted on a coffee mug or on a wall decoration in your home, and for good reason. It's one of those essential passages that we ought to know and live our lives according to what it commands. Uh, you may know that the book of Proverbs is a book that's mostly made up of, of wisdom sayings, words of wisdom, mostly coming from King Solomon um, as he is passing it down to, to his sons. It is a book of wisdom that a father is providing for his son, helping to, to set the direction for his life on the path of wisdom. And so I invite you to hear and receive these words as guidance from your Heavenly Father on what it means to be in relationship with Him. In other words, what it means to be blessed, to live a blessed life. So our main theme then for these verses is, He who is in a right relationship with God will abandon any hope in Himself and utterly depend upon God's grace and guidance. Now, of course, um, if you are a female, then you say, she who is in a right relationship with God will abandon any hope in herself and utterly depend upon God's grace and guidance. So we must look away from ourselves and have the eyes of our hearts completely filled up with God, leaning completely, utterly upon him. That's what this is telling us. That is what it means to be in a right relationship with the Lord. And we'll think about that together as we make our way through this passage using uh, these three admonishments that the text gives us. The first is trust in the Lord. Kind of the obvious one, right? Trust in the Lord, number one. Uh, we'll spend the most time on that one. Then number two, question yourself. Question yourself. And number three, be convinced that God is greater. Be convinced God is greater. It really is far better for us to be in relationship with God than it is just to pursue our own sinful desires and the ways of this world like everyone else. So let's go first to trust in the Lord, verses 5 and 6. So this is another one of those statements that Christians you know, like to throw around and, uh, uh, you know, just uh, say to, to one another, hey, just trust in, trust in God, trust in the Lord, trust in Jesus. But do we know what it really means? How can we tell if you are actually doing it? Is this just something that we say? Well, I'm not just a pastor, I'm also a coach. I've coached my son uh, Luther's baseball and basketball teams uh, the past few years, um, and it's now basketball season. And uh, one thing that Luther and his teammates have been hearing me say quite often in uh, our practices is for them to get your hands up. Get your hands up. Be ready to receive a pass 
on offense and go up with your shot or grab a rebound um, if you're on defense or if, you're, if a, a teammate uh, puts a shot up. Get those hands up. Be ready for the ball. It, it's pretty obvious for me as a coach to tell if they're doing that. Just, just watch them and you can see if they're doing that. But as a pastor, when I tell you to trust in the Lord with all your heart, how can I tell if you're actually doing it? How can you tell if you are actually doing it, if you're actually trusting in the Lord? Well, first, let's look at this word trust. This word trust in in the Hebrew was originally the idea of, of throwing oneself down on one's face to kind of lie spread eagle in complete reliance upon what you are entrusting yourself to. It's the idea of staking everything upon the Lord, throwing yourselves completely upon him and his promises. Either he will hold us and save us forever, or if not, then we will be utterly lost. But we are betting everything we have on him. Real trust is like that. Have you ever skydived? Now, they, they, they don't just let amateurs, you know, go up in airplanes and, and, and parachute out, but, but if you desired to do that, and if you could afford it, you could skydive while being strapped to a professional skydiver. Maybe you've seen a video of this when skydivers, you know, strap people uh, to themselves and then jump out of airplanes at 10,000 feet or higher And these poor people are there, spread eagle, attached to this person who is in complete control of when to pull that parachute open. That person has entrusted everything, his whole life, to that professional skydiver, trusting that he or she will know just when to pull that ripcord and that the parachute will then function properly to gently guide them all the way down to the ground without killing them. That is what it is like to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Either he will save me or I will die. But I'm not looking anywhere else, putting it all on him. In my reading this week, I came across a quote from A.W. Tozer, Um, explaining the difference between someone who thinks they trust in the Lord and someone who actually does trust in the Lord with all their heart. He says this, pseudo-faith or fake faith, pseudo-faith always arranges a way out to serve in case God fails it. Real faith knows only one way and gladly allows itself to be stripped of any second way or makeshift substitutes. For true faith, it is either God or total collapse. And not since Adam stood upon the earth has God failed a single man or woman who trusted him. I think he's right. So have you thrown yourself on the Lord? 
Have you thrown all of yourself on the Lord? Have you entrusted him with your life, with your sin, with your shame? Have you entrusted the Lord with your longing for joy and freedom? Have you freely handed over to God your dreams for your kids? Have you given him control over everything? Or are you still hanging on to those aspects of your life that you value the most? That you will look to save you when it really comes down to it. He will never fail anyone who trusts him radically. Next, I want you just to see clearly just who it is that we are called to radically trust here. It is the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Notice that the Lord is, is printed there in your Bibles in, in all capital letters. So this is not just some mysterious concept of a divine force or power. This is Yahweh. When it's translated with all capital letters, it's referring to the covenant name of God, Yahweh. The God who revealed himself to certain people. This is the one who saved and redeemed the sons and daughters of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He has a name. He wants us to know him personally. We know him by the name Jesus. In John 14, Jesus said to his disciples, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. God has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We can know him, we can, we can know what he is like by getting to know Jesus as he is revealed in the Bible. That is the one to whom we are entrusting ourselves completely. The one who left the glories and the perfect peace of heaven to take on weak and gritty human flesh in order to be crucified on a cross, bearing God's wrath for our sins so that we would be saved from the terror and eternal torment of God's devastating anger against us. We are given further instructions in, in verse 6, to in all your ways acknowledge him. Now to acknowledge here does not mean that we're just to mention him once in a while or remember to thank him for the blessings that we enjoy, you know, at least once a year on Thanksgiving. No, acknowledge here means to know him, to know the Lord. It's the same word that, that King David used in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9, when he commanded his son Solomon to know the God of your father and serve him with, your, with a whole heart and a willing mind. Sounds a lot like verse 5 here. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways, know the Lord. Know him. If we will trust him, we must know him. We can't trust him if we don't know him. And we don't really know him if we aren't trusting in him. For once you come to know the greatness, the glory, the wisdom, the power, and the love, grace, and mercy of God, you will come to realize how foolish it would be for you not to throw yourself, spread eagle, face first, onto all that God is for you. In John 17, 3, Jesus, in his prayer to God, the Father, 
in which he was interceding for his followers, he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To trust in the Lord with all your heart is to truly know the Lord, and to know the Lord is the very definition of eternal life. We were created to be in relationship with God. And if we know him, as Proverbs 3, verse 6 says, he will make straight your paths. But how will he do this? Again, this is not just some existential sense of things just you know, work out well in our life because we know the Lord. Straight paths here means to be morally straight. That is, to be righteous in our living. How will God make us walk in righteousness? How will God guide us into morally straight paths? Well, Psalm 73, 24 tells us how. There it says, you guide me with your counsel. How does God guide us? He guides us with his counsel, with his words. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. When we know the Lord, we will listen to his words, and his words will guide us. His words will instruct us to know how we are to live. If we will trust in the Lord, that means we will listen to what he says, and we will obey what he tells us. That's how you know whether or not you are really trusting in the Lord. Do you do what he says in his word? As a coach, I can tell whether or not one of my players really trusts me. I can see it when they begin to do what I've told them to do in the game. Not just in practice, but in the game. They're doing it. That's why I know they're listening to what I say, and they trust it. They trust me. And it's much the same for us with the Lord. Are we just going through the motions with him, or are we putting what he has said into practice? Are we allowing his word to govern our thoughts, to govern our actions, the choices that we make, what we say to others? That's when we know if we're really trusting in the Lord. Next, if you, are, if you are truly trusting the Lord, you will also question yourself. This is verses 5 and 7. Question yourself. These verses point us to a contrast between our natural inclination and the transformed disposition that we must have to be in a right relationship with God. That is, we must second-guess our own understanding and instead look away from ourselves to the Lord and follow what he says. Again, back at verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Number 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. And turn away from evil. So notice what both these verses from God's word are assuming here. 
Verse 5 assumes that the Lord is utterly trustworthy. We never have to question or doubt what the Lord says. But that it would be wise to doubt our own understanding, what we think should be done. Verse 5 is saying that when our own understanding or sense of what we should do comes into conflict with what God's Word says, then we must accept that God is right and we are wrong, which really shouldn't be all that difficult. I mean, you know, who am I in comparison to God, right? If you struggle with not being wise in your own eyes and instead accepting that God is right and you are wrong, well, you might be helped to meditate um, on a few of the questions that God asked Job in Job 38 through, through 41. If you ever read through Job or, 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 or heard messages on Job, you've probably heard what God says to Job at the end of the book. So verse, to chapters 38 through, through, through 41, God is asking Job a few questions, kind of getting Job in the right frame of mind and getting us in the right frame of mind when we're considering whether or not we are wise in our own eyes or we are fearing the Lord and turning away from evil and trusting in him. Here's some of, the, some of those, those questions. He asks Job, um, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of water may cover you? I mean, that is, can you just look up and command the clouds to empty their contents upon your land and give your crops rain whenever you think they need it? God can do that. Can you do that? And here's my favorite one. Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. That's lightning, isn't it? Boom, here I am. Can we send forth the lightning? For some of you uh, horse lovers out there, do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? Again, we're just kind of comparing ourselves with God. That's who God is. God can do all those things. God has done all those things. And who are you in comparison? So maybe, just maybe, if our understanding of right and wrong doesn't match up with what God's word says, we should just go with what he says over what we think. Right? Does that make sense? He is the creator of everything, even man and woman. And the amazing complexities of our minds and our souls His knowledge is unsearchable. His knowledge far exceeds what any internet search engine could ever reveal to us. He is the author of history and of what is yet to come. He knows what we are going to say before the words have even entered our minds. 
he not only knows what will happen, but what could have happened in the event of a million different contingencies. Maybe he does know better than we do. Maybe it would be wise to question ourselves and never question him. So if we are in our, or if we are to have a right relationship with the Lord, then one essential characteristic that we will need is humility. Oh, my friends, do we need humility. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. The way to grow in humility is to do exactly what verse 7 here is teaching us. Compare yourself with God and fear the Lord. Fear him. Take God and what he says seriously. He is God. In order to be humble, you must respect God as God. Recognize that he is pure, he is holy, and sovereignly just, and he hates sin. And he has the power and authority to either snuff out your life with a snap of his fingers or to allow you to continue to live in order to serve his purposes for your life. So let's examine ourselves to see whether or not you are living in wholehearted trust in the Lord. So here is one key question to ask yourself. Do you ever let the Bible overrule your own thinking? Do you ever let the Bible overrule your own thinking? Do you merely agree with the Bible or do you obey the Bible? What do you do when the Bible contradicts what you want to be true? Whenever your sense of right and wrong points in a different direction from what God's word says, a specific choice needs to be made to trust the Lord and not to lean on your own understanding. In my time as pastor, one of the primary contradictions uh, between what God's word clearly says and what many Christians, or at least those who claim to be Christian, actually do with their lives has to do with modern relationships. So God's word clearly says in several places that the sexual relationship must be preserved and protected only within the covenant of marriage. That's the only proper place, according to God, for the sexual relationship to take place within marriage. And yet many young people who believe themselves to be Christians, who have come into my office wanting to be married and told me about their relationship, engage in sexual relationships outside of marriage. Living together, sleeping together, outside of marriage, and seem to do it without any sense of shame. And that's something that really ought to be pretty clear if Christians are really trusting in the Lord with all their heart. But instead, what they're doing is looking at what God's word says and saying, nah, not for me. I'll lean upon my own understanding in this area of my life. That's better than God. 
Another way that this is happening is in regard to how Christians talk about and treat those with whom they disagree. I've heard those who claim to be Christians, some who even seem to be very strong and committed to the Bible, yet they mock and make fun of those who have a different view of the origin of life on earth or some other Bible teaching or who may have different political views than they do. God's word teaches us to to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, seek to win those to Christ who are outside the faith, or as we read earlier in 1 Thessalonians 5, seek to do good to everyone. And yet far too many save their most animated vitriol for those who would dare to disagree with their view of eschatology or social justice or other political view. In verse 7 tells us, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Question yourself. Remember that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we have to be humble enough to admit we are sinners. We have to confess them to the Lord. And he's promised to be gracious and merciful to us. Last, in verse 8, be convinced that God is greater. Be convinced that God is greater. And I want you to notice here in Proverbs 3 how God connects the counsel that he gives with incentives to trust him. These are wonderful benefits to being in a right relationship with the Lord. He wants us to be convinced that we will experience far more joy, far more pleasure, and far more happiness if we trust him and walk the narrow and difficult path of obedience than if we would just lean upon our own understanding and follow the easy way of the world. Now look back at the the beginning of chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, how this chapter begins. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For, here's the benefit, here's the incentive, for length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. So if that's true, then of course, what he's saying is sin and disobedience bring so much suffering, destruction, and disaster to our lives. That's one of the clear lessons that we see throughout the Old Testament in books of Judges and Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, how deadly it is to ignore the word of the Lord, how disastrous it is for us to just turn away from God and live however we want to live. So God says, repent, turn away from all that and come to me to have life, to have true peace, to enjoy the blessings that you were created for, to fulfill the very purpose for which I gave you life and the gifts and talents that I put into your mind and your body. If you would but trust in the Lord with all your heart, fear the Lord and turn away from evil, then as verse 8 says, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment 
to your bones. Our sin does damage to our souls and to our lives, but when we humble ourselves and repent and throw ourselves completely upon the grace of God and Jesus Christ, God's grace does a healing work in us. Being in a right relationship with the Lord is like refreshment, it says, or it could be translated as medicine in the form of a cool, refreshing beverage. Think of what it feels like when you are working outside and on a hot and humid day in late July and someone brings you a full 32-ounce cup of your favorite pop or fruit-flavored iced tea, just hands it to you, just what a refreshment that is. The Bible promises such good things for those who turn to the Lord, but the things of this world and the pleasures of sin just seem to always seem greater to us than what the Lord offers us. We have to be convinced that God is greater. That we will enjoy both now in this life and for all time in eternity. It is far, far better than anything a life of chasing after what this world offers could ever be for us. In your Bible reading, I want you to feast on these promises of joy in God. Like what we see here in Proverbs 3 and in the Psalms. Um, Psalm 1611 says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or Psalms, uh, Psalm 4, 7, and 8, where it says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, Make me dwell in safety. Or a few of them from Psalm 63. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. And don't forget what the Lord has promised in the next life for those who trust in him in this life. After our resurrection into new uh, incorruptible bodies, we will be in the very presence of the Lord. And we will enjoy a place described so wonderfully by the hymn writer Samuel Stennett um, in his, his great hymn, I'm bound for the promised land. Maybe you're familiar with that one. He says, all over those wide extended plains shines one eternal day. There God the Son forever reigns and scatters night away. No chilling winds nor poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore where sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more. That's what is to come, brothers and sisters. That's what is to come. Far, far better than we can ever experience here. So trust in the Lord, friends. Throw yourself fully upon his grace 
And he promises you it will be greater, far greater than you could ever imagine. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so grateful for these words, these promises. And I pray that we would leave this morning filled with hope. Hope that you can fulfill all that you've promised. Lord, may we trust in you. May we throw ourselves completely upon you and your promises. And we know you will catch us. You will save us. You'll redeem us. You will lead us all the way to the kingdom come. May our eyes be upon you. Pray us in the name of Jesus. Amen.